Welcome to the Politics of Everything. I'm Amber Danes, your host and podcast producer. This is a half hour of power, a podcast dropping every week where I unpack the politics of everything, from money to motherhood, nutrition to narcissism, startups to secularism, the environment, quality, and much, much more. Our guests are seasoned in the field or topic of their choice, even if you've not heard of them yet. This is a non-partisan show. So while I love exploring varied views and get a buzz from a healthy debate of ideas, this is not a purely blue, white, green program. Please subscribe, tune in and enjoy the politics of everything. With me today is Michael Buckland. He's the new CEO of the McKell Institute, Australia's leading think tank in areas of housing affordability, taxation, wage theft, wage growth, superannuation, childcare, and much more, all the big ticket items. The McKell Institute works with all major political parties to pursue progressive solutions to the most policy challenges of our time. You can see that McKell does a whole bunch of different work across all different parties. Before this, he was actually working for the Ramsey Foundation, where Michael led policy programs and public affairs to help achieve their mission and to break cycles of disadvantage in Australia. His passion while working for the foundation was seeking ways to disrupt the stubborn cycle of disadvantage caused by our criminal justice system. His earliest political memory was of students wearing protest T-shirts to Balmain Primary School in Sydney during the waterfront dispute. Watching people suffer for a cause and for others shaped the way Michael views policy challenges. He then went on to serve later in his career as Chief of Staff and Policy Director to New South Wales Opposition Leaders, giving him extensive experience at the highest level of policy development and government. His diverse background includes working for a derivatives trading firm, First Prudential Markets, trade unions and a range of advocacy campaigns. Michael takes a dim view of policy as it's usually used in its most modern political challenges and seeks to bring his diverse expertise into shaping something far better. Perfectly, we are chatting about the politics of policymaking and I welcome you to the show, Michael. Thank you for having me, Amber. Excellent. So given where you're at now, I have this vision of you, you know, as a kid, maybe at Balmain, public school, thinking about being prime minister or something lofty like that. Is that is that where you thought you'd end up? <laughs> Not quite. Um, it actually took a long time for me to, to develop an interest in, in politics and, and policy. I always liked the idea of becoming a detective myself. Catching baddies was always uh, something I was more interested in. But my family actually had a lot of uh, political discussions, but it was never party politics. It was always the politics of a particular issue and and what we thought was right and wrong. In fact, it wasn't until my late teens that my parents would even tell me who they voted for, uh, which I, I only found out later was an odd thing for most families. Yeah. Absolutely. Most of us, yeah, they and a lot of people traditionally in Australia, I don't know if it's globally true, vote similar to their parents. Not always, but I do find that it tends to become a generational, you know, we're one way or the other. That's right. In fact, there's a lot of evidence that suggests that that is the biggest impact on on how you're going to vote is how your parents would vote. Interesting. Well, I've rebelled a few times. So um, yes, I definitely don't vote the same way as my family consistently. So how does one prepare for a career in policy advising and policy making? I mean, is there steps? Is there study that you have to do? How do you really get the groundwork right so that you can be successful at it? Well, I'd say to start with that there's many ways to contribute. And so I wouldn't for a moment pretend that there is a single model for the best way to give advice or to participate. Some people choose to apply themselves to analysis. And this, you know, 
if you become an expert in a field or become proficient in some sort of modeling, those are really valuable ways to contribute. But there's also a degree of creativity that, in my experience, our education system doesn't foster very well, but that is very essential to being able to apply an analysis to a problem in a creative way to get the best solution. In fact, one of the things I found having worked across all the fields and one thing that was in common amongst all of them was the best skill set was actually being able to understand the mission. And it applies slightly differently in each situation, but really having a great, a firm sense of what it is you're trying to achieve is probably the best way to do it, regardless of what your skill set is. And this isn't just me saying it either. Rob McLean, who's a former managing partner of McKinsey, he wrote a book called Bulletproof Problem Solving. And the very first step was problem definition, defining the problem that you're trying to solve. And that's in a sort of management consultancy point of view, but also my old boss, Glyn Davis, who was the secretary of the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet under Kevin Rudd, and, uh, and later he was vice chancellor of the University of Melbourne. He wrote a book called Australian Policymakers Handbook, in, which is more practically applied to public servants. But the one of the central premises is being able to understand the environment in which you're working in and therefore being able to understand the mission you've undertaken. And so I think that's one stream that regardless of where your particular expertise is, that's a one focus point that everyone should have. Interesting. Um, the term pork barrelling comes up regularly in Australian politics. I always find it quite, quite a strange term, particularly as someone who doesn't eat pork. Um, why is it that <laughs> it's such a big deal and how does it really impact policymaking? I mean, it comes up as a kind of scandalous term that gets used, but it's also sort of familiar and almost accepted. So what does it mean really in that policymaking space? Yeah, it is a, it is a very odd um phenomenon that has sort of become to be expected. Um, but to start with, for those who aren't as familiar, pork barrelling is when an elected official directs government funds to certain areas. It could be an electorate, it could be a particular interest group, in order to buy votes. And it's a form of corruption, really. However, where it becomes a little bit more nuanced is that in modern politics, we somewhat expect our politicians to make decisions based on what will have the support of the public and generate votes for them. And so the line becomes a little bit blurred. But realistically, and this comes across in all governance, whether you're working on a board or whether you're working in government, the role of the leadership should be in determining how funds are allocated and the criteria with which they'll be allocated, not individual projects. And otherwise you start getting into all sorts of conflicts of interest. And the biggest example that many people in Australia would be familiar with uh, from last year is the sports rort scandal. In New South Wales, it, it manifests itself in the council rort scandal. But to understand really why it's serious, look, maybe the best example is to look at the New South Wales and Commonwealth Government's bushfire relief fund. So this was a fund that was almost $200 million. It was introduced to help councils that were affected by bushfires something that Australians responded to. In fact, people all over the world responded to at the end of last year. So, you know, really noble goal. Yet the Blue Mountains Council, where which was one of the worst hit by bushfires, 38% of the council area was affected by bushfire. They didn't receive a cent of that money. And so it stops becoming a game 
Yeah, exactly. And I think that's the, that's the thing. And so where does that sit with the policy framework, though? Obviously, the policy is let's help these people. I mean, I'm obviously using colloquial language. Let's help those affected. But obviously, there's there's winners and losers in that. Yes. And, and if it was done uh, in, in the best way possible, the ideal scenario in a situation like this would be that you determine an amount, perhaps by council area based on criteria of how affected that council is, that would be a way. Or your, if the fund was to replace replace damaged infrastructure, that would be a way to, to resolve it. And those are objective criteria. The implication of this is that the government made decisions based on, on politics. You know, they've defended that by saying, well, the, the programs proposed by the Blue Mountains Council just weren't adequate. But realistically, it undermines public confidence in the system if it takes political power to be able to receive any political benefit. Absolutely. And sometimes it's, you know, the media or other stakeholders shedding a light on it for us to even know that this has happened. And I think that's often unfortunate because by that point you think, well, how long has this been going on? And, you know, would it ever have gone unreported if it, you know, if there wasn't someone who actually shed a light on that? Yeah, and I would dare say that it is one of the uh, the ones that are reported are probably just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to how funds are administered. Interestingly, on the flip side, what what makes a good policymaker? What makes what makes that work really well? And the people behind it, what do they need to have? What secret sauce? Well, I think there's a. It goes a little bit to what I mentioned earlier about having a, a fixed mission and a clear understanding of what the problem is you're trying to solve. So, so many people look at a particular issue in isolation. Government in, invariably, at least big political decisions, are almost always going to intersect with multiple sectors or uh, multiple systems. And so to be able to understand that you're not working in a, in a box, you're not working in a solo environment and something that might have a positive effect in one area might have a negative effect in the other and I think that's where the best the best policymakers have a very clear understanding of where they sit in that set, in that system. So, in your experience, is there a fail-proof or best practice way to get a particular policy accepted or mandated? Particularly, obviously, there's different views on either side of the political spectrum, or there might be even within your own organisation or a party. How, how do you get that stuff through? I mean, if you've got the answer, I'll take it from you if, uh, if, if you can manage it. I mean, the, 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 real, the, the real answer here is, is, is a policy any ever fully accepted? I mean, it, it took successive government losses, election losses for the federal opposition in the 80s and 90s to roll back, to change their policy to roll back Medicare. And that was when Medicare was finally accepted. But we all remember, you know, campaigns from just a couple of years ago in which Medicare came up again. I would have listed, a year ago, I would have listed superannuation as a policy that was fully accepted in the 90s and as, as sort of a core part of our retirement system. But, you know, for anyone paying attention and it's only going to become bigger this year, superannuation is going to become one of the biggest debates of 2021, whether or not we go ahead with the increase in the superannuation guarantee, whether we allow super funds to be released early. So, I mean, to understand why we're sort of in this constant state of flux is probably uh, to look at what standards are applied to change. And really, politicians who are pushing for reform are always going to be judged at a higher standard than those who are sticking with the status quo. And there's a reason for this. In behavioural economics, it's called loss aversion. 
where individuals tend to prefer, prefer to avoid a loss than to receive a benefit. So you would prefer not to lose $20 than to gain $20, even though in traditional economics they would be seen as identical. Because childcare, so the, in 2020, the government made childcare free by paying half of the costs of our childcare centres. And that was during the, the sort of pandemic? Is that that's, that's sort of the era we're talking that's about? Right. Where they've kind of got come in and said, let's do this for now. That's right. It was a way to keep particularly shift workers able to work. Um, my wife's a nurse, and so during the pandemic, uh, she was busy and and had a, and couldn't work from home. So having childcare available was was essential for us as a family. And so the government did, I think, something that was broadly seen as very positive, and they made childcare free, and they covered half the cost of childcare, which ended up costing the government one hundred and thirty one million dollars a week. It sounds like a lot of money. If you were to cover the full cost of childcare, you know, back of the envelope, you're looking at about $13 billion a year. Negative gearing costs the government $13 billion a year. So if I was, right. you know, king of the world, I might choose to replace negative gearing with free childcare. And it might depend on what, what motivates you too, I guess, because if you're a self-funded retiree who's got investment properties, you might see it differently. Even if you are supposedly working for the greater good, I suppose it comes Absolutely. down to that where the majority of people sit. And the truth is, going back to loss aversion, it's the people who are going to lose something are going to be a lot more motivated than the people who are going to gain something. Uh, and so even though it's a straight swap, it's not, you know, that, that that's really the ultimate barrier to policy decision, policy progress is because of that fear of loss. That's interesting. It's in a similar theme. My, my next question to you is, is, I've just been thinking a lot about the devil of the detail of, of policies. And obviously, as a general community, a lot of people, not all people, would agree that the big items like climate change and obviously the stopping the spread of COVID-19 is re really right on our doorstep. As such, you often get not a lot of opposition that, that yeah, we need to deal with these things. But Obviously, the devil's in the detail once again. So how do you actually make sure that there's sort of a solution, but it's obviously addressing all those individual concerns? I mean, I'm not thinking the people who are climate change deniers, for example, you may never convince them. And, and in my own studies of public relations theory, there is that sort of unaffected audience who you never really are going to convince. So you don't worry about them. You just kind of ignore them in a way. But there are others that are sort of somewhere in between. So how do you make sure that for the greater good, we can get this stuff done, but we're not sort of, I guess, navel-gazing too much about, you know, how and when and just making it happen, particularly if it's something really urgent like a global pandemic and obviously climate change is um, also a big issue, but perhaps people forgot about the bushfires from a year ago and they're like, oh, COVID's the big issue. So I think it changes and I guess the, the question really is how do you make sure that we keep these things moving and, and we don't sort of pander too much to each each concern? Oh, that is that is a Fantastic question, and there's a lot to unpack there. I mean, to start, it's it's worthwhile remembering that it is quite common for, at least at the political level of decision-making, for detail to be used intentionally to confuse a debate. And so sometimes that devil in the detail isn't someone's messed up. It's actually an intentional misuse of use of detail in political debate which, you know, it, it unfortunately can confuse a lot of people. Maybe one of the best ways to look at this is to... That's interesting. Yeah, is to, is to understand at what level we're having discussions. So 
I don't know that we should be expecting our politicians to outline every detail of every policy. I think they should be looking at setting clear agendas, leadership priorities. They should be trying to bring the public along with them. That is their role. And honestly, it's whether it's public servants or consultants or delivery partners, from a day-to-day point of view, they're often having a bigger impact. I would argue that the school principal and the teachers have such a huge impact on how my local school is run compared to maybe the education department. They both have a role to play, but they're different roles. And so the point I make there is that we sometimes are looking for our politicians to solve a problem that they're not well suited to solve. They're not going to be the ones who are best suited to go through all the details. They're the ones who are best suited to bring the public along for a new priority and an agenda. And there's an example here too. So if we look at climate change, to to use one from your question, industry is investing very heavily in renewables. It's one of Macquarie Bank's fastest growing business units uh, and, and no industry participant is looking to invest in coal. They're far ahead of the political debate and they're the ones making the decision. Absolutely. I saw I, I saw ANZ Bank, for example, is no longer going to back a coal project, you know. It, it's So one of the big four banks, ANZ, announced recently they're not going to back a coal mine project, which they had for years. Absolutely. There you go. And that's, I mean, that is exactly the example of, and I don't think, you know, opponents of this kind of, of that view describe this as, as corporate activism. I don't think it's that. I think it's they're making smart financial decisions and this is where it leads them. And so, you know, the point I'm making here is that sometimes the people who are actually doing, making the change in society aren't the politicians. And, uh, and at times we should take hope from that. Yeah, lots of people power there. So why would seemingly good policy sometimes fail? I mean, is it about not enough dollars behind it? Is it about not having enough public support? Is it the optics of a campaign or is it something bigger or is it all those things or is it none of those things? I think it can be it can be all those things. One of the biggest issues is ultimately people don't always agree on what the objective is and that's why a policy can't ever become universally accepted. If people don't agree, you know, that climate change is real, how do we get how do we get a climate change policy that becomes universally accepted? One of the big one of the big I think pitfalls of policy in the last maybe two decades has been an increasing use of means testing. You know, and this is essentially where you want to apply a policy, let's say, uh, cheaper access to childcare but you want to apply it to only the people in need. And so, which sounds like a really good policy objective. And so you bring, you you say maybe that only people who earn less than the average wage, about uh, $68,000 is I believe the average wage for a woman in Australia, full-time wage. And so let's say you, you say only people who earn less than that average wage are eligible for this scheme. Well, that's, that's great. It means that the scheme costs less money, but it really doesn't get accepted the same as, let's say, Medicare, which is a universal scheme. Uh, and to bring that same example into life in a more modern context, uh, Anthony Albanese, the federal uh, Labor opposition leader, last year announced an extension of childcare rebates to 90% of the cost of childcare for uh, families earning up to a couple hundred thousand dollars. So way, way higher than has been in the past. 
So, so the pool gets bigger and that I guess that's sort of your more average kind that, of sweep of people. By making it bigger, you bring more people into the system. And he was criticised a little bit at the time for allowing essentially wealthy people to get government subsidies. But at the same time, the payoff is that you're involving more people in the scheme, you're defining the scheme as something that is universal, that is for everyone. And to be honest, I think it will be more publicly accepted and last longer in with that model rather than the means testing model. That's fascinating. So getting a bit personal now, if you could choose just one song, a book, a film, it could be a series or a screenplay, that always makes your heart skip a beat and it has really kind of been something you keep coming back to. What would you choose and why? Oh, that is that is really hard. Uh, it, you know, um, and no judgment here, right? Because I've had a few interesting answers on this, and I think people think it has to be something really academic and intellectual. I've had all sorts of answers. No, my uh, if I was going to write one, I uh, say one I'd, I'd mention. Um, it's from Charlie Chaplin, who's not really known for saying anything, but um, in in the end of his movie, The Great Dictator, he gives a, a, a passionate speech, and one of the lines uh, that sort of always got to me was. He says, our knowledge has made us cynical, our cleverness hard and unkind. We think too much and feel too little. And I don't know why, but that's always uh, sort of struck me as quite quite profound, really. Absolutely, particularly for someone who was known for their silent screen presence, yeah, that's really. Right. So he, he, if, if people saw that ironic. speech and his, his film there, I never understood why he did silent films after that. Absolutely. Lots of people have mentors in their life and sometimes it's family members, sometimes it's people you've worked with, sometimes it's someone completely different. Do you have a couple and what have they taught you about success and life? I have a lot and it's because I've always kind of thought that uh, the best thing is to have to take as much of the good from everyone that you work with. But, uh, I mean, the first person that comes to mind is is Chris Neal. She is the chair of Women's Community Shelters and she was formerly Bob Carr's chief of staff that took him from opposition to government. And her, she's always enthusiastic and always keen to give it a go. And I thought that was really important. Someone else would be uh, working closely with Glyn Davis, uh, who I mentioned previously, sort of bestowed on me the importance of having a degree of intellectual rigour in the public debate and also how to manage leadership. And the final person I'd mentioned to get to three is, is Sam Crosby, who is the former CEO of the McKell Institute. One of the, the things I fear about reformist politicians is that we, we are sometimes, they are sometimes too cautious and they're not proud. And uh, he, he was always a strident advocate and wanted more confidence in advocating a position. And I really take that away from him. And now you've got big shoes to fill, of course. That's right. He doesn't make it easy for me. I'm sure you do great. So just a final takeaway, what would be your overarching message for anyone facing the politics of policymaking? I'd say that everyone has a role to play. Okay. So everyone, everyone get out there, start to helping to shape policy. I have really loved our conversation today, Michael. If you want to connect further with the McKell Institute or Michael Buckland, I will have some details on our show notes. This is the politics of everything. Until next time, keep well. Thanks so much for listening today. If you've enjoyed the politics of everything, I thrive on your feedback. So please add a short review and share the podcast with your network through Apple, Spotify, and all the usual suspects. 
I'm always on the hunt for new and diverse guests. So if you or someone you know has a fresh idea, you're busting to get out there, please email me at amber at amberdanes.com and my crew will get back to you very soon.